bum bum bottom 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 bum
readers back in the day. And that's why Parallel Lives was written by Jerry Conway in 1989 to show that Peter and MJ always belong together. And we talked about that in part one. And as that relationship became the status quo, guys like Joe Quesada were getting irritated going, this is not how Spider-Man should be. And for a Decades, Quesada was just waiting for the opportunity, working his way up the ranks so that he could destroy that marriage, annul that relationship, and get Peter Parker back to the swinging lifestyle of a bachelor. Well, he picked a real crazy way to do it. He sure did. He sure did. And we are going to get into it. And I am very curious to get your take on this storyline. I had never read it before, and I was... I think, you know, conceptually on the side of all the critics of this series, but now having read it, I enjoyed it way more than I thought I was going to. Okay. Oh, oh okay. Lisa's, Lisa's not showing any hold- review. What am, I, what am I holding so close to me, Tess? Oh, it's my cards. It's your cards. All right. Well, I won't ask you to reveal them just yet. Casada, uh, as I said, he was Marvel editor-in-chief at the time, and I think... It would be nice at this point to let his words speak on this subject, to get it into the record. Uh, He did this interview in 2007, uh, shortly after the publication of the final issue with Comic Book Resources. And I'd like to read just a chunk of that interview. It's a long chunk, but Lisa, would you mind if I I gave Casada the floor? Sure, sure. So this is what he had to say to CBR. Sometimes, when I look at the way that the lines of opinion have been drawn in comics about the marriage, I see the argument falling into two basic camps. The fans may not perceive it this way on the surface, but it is what's happening when you look at it clearly. When we fall in love with these characters, we claim ownership over them in our own way. So for some fans, Peter belongs to them and no one else. So the way I see it, there are two sides of the argument two segments of fans. On one side, there is a contingency of fandom that wants Peter to age along with them and live life as they do. He needs to get married, have kids, then grandkids, and then the inevitable. On the other side, there are fans that realize Spidey needs to be ready for the next wave of generation of readers, that no one can lay claim to these icons, no one generation has ownership, and that we need to preserve them and keep them healthy for the next batch of readers to fall in love with them. To me, only one side of this argument is correct. If Spidey grows old and dies off with our readership, then that's it. He'll be done and gone, never to be enjoyed by future comic fans. I think that's kind of interesting, Lisa. What what are your first thoughts on that? Um, I think that this argument isn't even valid anymore because now we have so many Spider-Man storylines going on (laughs) at the same time. And we don't let us, like they've been doing the Spider-Man decades where they show Peter Parker aging, 70s, 80s, 90s. Oh, Chip Zdarsky's life story, which is great. Right, so that exists. Other Spider-Men exist. Spider-Geddon. Spider-Verse, like all of those things. So to me, it's just... One, if a kid is interested in the original Spider-Man comics, they can get them. They're available. They're being printed. But, it, but they are dated. You know, yeah. you read something from the 60s. They're not going to connect with modern children, the YouTube generation, but like they would a, have back in the day. There's literally a Spider-Man for each generation. Yes. And there's a not just a Spider-Man, but a Peter Parker for each generation. So to me, 
It just, like, this just seems like a moot point, Casada. What I like about it, and what I agree with Casada here, is how fans do claim ownership over characters. Right. And how if we cater to perceptions of readers, then, you know, that's very dangerous for narrative. At the same time, you have to let your characters grow and evolve, and Spider-Man did. You know, Spider-Man of the 80s is very different than the 60s. He's very different than the aughts. He's very different than the Spider-Man we're getting today with Nick Spencer and Ryan Otley and Herberto Ramos. Uh, So, like, it's okay for characters not to be stuck in high school for 50 years. Some characters, I like it that way. You know, some characters, like, I'm okay with this weird timeline that happens over a monthly comic book where they only age so much. Right. You know? And, you know, like, if you pick up a comic book uh, with Peter Parker and Mary Jane today, they're still probably, like, in their early 20s, mid-20s, mm-hmm. right? They're out of high school, out of college, but they're still pretty darn young. Yeah. They have not aged like Chip Zdarsky's life story is doing, which, again, I love and you should be reading. They're not aging like we age. And that's fine, and that's to be expected. My issue is when you stagnate a character and you say, you know, he cannot have a real relationship. You know, because we met him as a bachelor, he must remain a bachelor. And that's kind of what Casada wants. He wants to maintain those comics that he was reading with Peter in high school and Peter in college, and he was swinging with Betty Brant and Liz Allen and Gwen Stacy and what have you. Uh, so I don't know. Like This also, like bumps up on one of, like, my pet peeves where the idea of once a person is married, they are done as a human being and any kind of growth or change. I mean, up until the point you have kids, then, like, you're not going to change at all. Like, the the story of two married people is not exciting because you know exactly who they're going to sleep with. And I think what's interesting about that, I agree with you, it is a problem with married couples in entertainment. Uh, you know, the sequel always has to enter uh, a, a rocky period. Right. You know? <laughs> but, you know, we had 20 plus years of Peter and MJ together. And if you look at a lot of those comics that were happening in the 90s uh, and the early aughts, there is a sense of plateauing uh, with their storyline. That being said, what J. Michael Straczynski introduced in the early aughts um, with Peter and MJ and what Matt Fraction and Salvador Lorca were doing in Sensational Spider-Man Annual Number 1, they were showing that there is still narrative material to mine. You know, there's still areas of that romance to explore in unique ways. And like all things, it comes down to how is the writer interpreting the story. Right. And the characters. Right. So, I don't know. That, so that, there we are with Joe Casada. He wants to break up the marriage. We're reading one more day. He's going to do it in these four issues. But Lisa. Yes. I think Love Types is going to have a lot to say about Peter and MJ during this storyline. Uh, how are we going to bring Dr. Alexander Avila's work into this conversation this week. Just to have a little refresher on Dr. Alexander Avila, Dr. Alexander Avila is a psychologist, and the full title of his book is Love Types, Discover Your Romantic Style and Find Your Soulmate. In this book, Dr. Avila uses the principles behind the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator Test to develop the love type system. The love type system was created to help you identify what your personality or love type brings to a relationship, 
what types of personalities or love types would be compatible with yours, how to suss out of potential partners what their love types are, and then when you find someone you like with the love type you desire, how to make them fall in love with you. <laughs> and as we've said in previous episodes, that is a Dr. Doom scenario. I love it. I love it. I'm <laughs> Very going to use the love type system to take over the world. <laughs> we dedicated our first two weeks with Spidey and MJ through Parallel Lives and to having to hold solidifying ours as well as Peter's and MJ's love types. And we came to the following conclusions. I am an INFP, an idealistic philosopher, Brad and MJ are ENFPs, social philosophers, and Peter is an ISFP, a caretaker. We took the 16personalities.com version of the Myers-Briggs, not the spendy money version of the Myers-Briggs. Our podcast is big, but not that huge. Yeah, we, we just came back from Comic-Con. <laughs> like paying for online tests. No, no, type of no. Cheap. We're cheap. Yeah. Um, and then we also took the love types test in this book, and we decided those results were garbage, and we threw them out. <laughs> so now we're moving into part two of Dr. Avila's book, Unmasking Your Soulmate. Get it? Mask? Because mm. of Peter Parker? Yeah, like I said, it's going to work. It's, it's going to work for this. It's like Dr. Avila was thinking of us. As part of the love type system, Dr. Avila split the Myers-Briggs 16 personalities into four love temperaments, which are characterized by two personality preferences that the group has in common. I think I I I can't tell if you can tell by the way I'm saying it, but love type, love temperament, those are one word with the No space. With no space and two um capitalized letters. Yeah, yeah. He's really yeah. into the marketing of this. <laughs> okay. So um the four love temperaments are meaning seekers. So meaning seekers have as their two center letters, N and F, meaning that they're intuitive feelers. Me, you, Brad, mm -hmm. and MJ are all meaning seekers. Meaning seekers value intimacy, personal growth, the search for meaning, and the power of imagination in their relationships. Security seekers. Security seekers have S as their second letter and J as their final letter. So they're sensing judgers. So this is Peter Parker. Security seekers value tradition, loyalty, security, mm -hmm. and structure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The yes, other yes, two yes. Um, temperaments are knowledge seekers. So this is NTs, who I, I figured uh, Dr. Octopus was a knowledge seeker. <laughs> right. Knowledge seekers value logic, debate, intelligence, competence, and continual growth. And the last one is excitement seekers. So S is the second letter and P is the final letter, meaning they're sensing perceivers. They value fun, excitement, adventure, and spontaneity. Now, for the rest of this episode, I'm not going to go love type by love type and explain each little one because that would, one, take me forever, though I would super enjoy it. Um, so... If you are not the same love type as either me or Brad or Spidey and MJ or Dr. Octopus, you can you can look up all of this stuff online. But I've just gone through our personality types to figure out who's compatible with who. How how do I bed an ENFP? 
Right, because that's the goal. We exactly. gotta weaponize and this. And that's what Dr. Avila is telling us to do. For each of the personality types, Dr. Avila gives a little explanation of what the personality type is like in love, uh, who are they most compatible with, and if that personality type is a personality type you feel like you should be with or are attracted to, how to worm your way into their little hearts so you can find love and companionship. So the first personality type I was attracted to was, of course, my own. (laughs) So here is my personality type. I am an idealistic philosopher or an INFP. And reading this chapter, there are points in it that are kind of eerie because they are so similar to my actual life. Research shows that INFPs, like myself, are most likely to marry someone of the same love type, and they're happiest doing so. They Uh have the fewest conflicts in communication, finances, child rearing, and chores. Now, you (laughs) and I are very close to the same love type. Yeah, I know. I know. And your dad says that when you took the test in high school, you also got an INFP, but you... Like your dad likes to say, you blossomed. I like to think of, I got bit by the radioactive spider that was retail (laughs) that forced me to communicate with the outside world. But we do have very few conflicts because of finances. (laughs) We agree on child rearing, which is to not do it. Yeah, and we agree that being poor is the happiest way to be. I think part of it is because uh, nobody is doing it. Like, nobody is doing our finances, so it bothers <laughs> neither of us. I'm sure if someone was, if one of us was super concerned with it, that they would be kind of annoyed at our behavior. But anyway. Oh, well. Now, here's something that I find a little strange is he splits up compatibility from female idealistic philosophers and male idealistic philosophers. Mm. And he only speaks in terms of... Male, female. Exactly. Uh, So uh this book is very heteronormative. I don't know. I don't know what my uh, uh, homosexual idealistic philosophers are supposed to do. They'll find no answers in this book. Um, But I'd be interested to hear his reasoning behind why a female idealistic philosopher would have different compatibility. He doesn't go into that? No. Oh, okay. No, it doesn't. Weird. Which is good, because this book is long enough So let's just dismiss that. Let's keep going. Anyway, so a female idealistic philosopher like myself is most compatible with others that fall under the meaning-seeker love temperament. So um, other idealistic philosophers are best. Then come mystic writers, growth teachers, and social philosophers, which is you, Brad, All right. and ENFP. Oh, Third and, place. And Mary Jane. Give me the bronze. Yes. Um, the male idealistic philosophers are most compatible with first other idealistic philosophers or mystic writers. Though, if you're male idealistic philosopher, you have to be careful with that final J letter because they're going to be too judgmental and you might get your fifis hurt. I'd really like to talk to him about his gendering of these. Yeah, I know. The the idea that he doesn't address that at all in the book is really weird to me. It's bizarre. But I guess this book was published several decades ago and heteronormative uh, points of view were assumed uh, more than anything else. I I think so. And maybe because of the research, quote unquote, Uh that he is relying (laughs) on, Uh maybe there wasn't as much research available. Hmm. I'm not sure. I'm trying to... Okay, well... Well, 
ah, here it is in 1999. So that that was a good chunk of time ago. Yeah, a decade before One More Day came out even. Right. No excuses, Avila. Anyway, um, if your ideal mate is an idealistic philosopher, as in if you want to bed a, a sweet, sweet philosopher like myself, idealistic philosophers love writing, psychology, the arts, and are drawn to activities that involve a crusade or mission. I mean, that is pretty close to you. This is the kicker, though. You can often meet idealistic philosophers at bookstores. Oh, no. Or in book clubs. Yeah. We met at a bookstore. Yes. Because we both worked at Barnes & Noble. <laughs> um, other awesome. Place, other places you can find them, adult education courses, poetry readings, book signings. You're getting a theme here? Yeah. We like books. Um, idealistic philosophers tend to be the most insecure love type. And though they are talented in many areas, languages, art, music, psychology, they do not give themselves credit for their accomplishments. They tend to have a fearful outlook on life. I have an anxiety <laughs> disorder. So it is important to be gentle and sensitive when talking to them. We're just little scared rabbits. All right. So you feel pretty good about that label. I do. I feel great. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes on, like, talk to them about their interests. One thing I find hilarious is for each of the personality types, he gives a list of videos, and he uses that term, videos, but he's not talking about YouTube, he's talking about movies. Like VHS. Yeah. Maybe even Betamax. In 1999? Uh, no, nah, we had moved on to DVD by that point. Not Dr. Avila, though. <laughs> The movies for idealistic philosophers are Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Oh, weird. Phenomenon. Uh, okay. 1996. Mm. He's being super current with his movies. Mm -hmm. um, Gandhi, 1982. I do like that movie. I mean, it's a good movie. And Dead Poets Society, 1989. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, that's a lot to process, Lisa. Um, yeah. Um, wow. Some hot tips for laying a idealistic philosopher. One. Avoid conflict. Idealistic philosophers yearn for harmony and do not like debate. So th this is something that actually came up during Comic-Con because they have the women who kick ass panel every uh -huh, year. Uh -huh. And one of, my, one of my crusades, I guess, is uh, body positivity. And for the past several years, they've had all like size twos talking about but, like, you have to accept yourself and love yourself as you are. And for some reason, it just got caught, stuck in my craw that I'm like, how come size twos are telling me about body acceptance when they are the ideal body type according to society? And I just emotionally and mentally shut down. And that women who kick ass panel has been going on for nine years and the conversation has not really morphed Evolved at all. At all. Yeah. So really annoying. frustrating. Yeah. Um, always be aware of your idealistic philosophers, social energy level. That's something you and I talk about a mm -hmm. lot where I'm like, I only like one outing at a time. So, uh, yeah. Um, and also be wary of violating your idealistic philosophers, most deeply held values because they will cry. <laughs> um, hot sex tip for an idealistic philosopher, appeal to your idealistic philosophers, highly developed sense of imagination. Good to know. Writing that down. Yep, yep. I, 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 I don't know. Brad and I don't do any kind of weird role play in the bedroom. That's not who we are. 
Maybe we should, though. I don't know, but I'm not interested. And <laughs> But I do like to call it like I'm like a huh? pool shark calling a shot. I like to call when we're going to have sex <laughs> several hours in advance. <laughs> and, um, and I don't know why I do that. I do think Because you're it, Babe Ruth of the bedroom. <laughs> well, I do think that appeals to my imagination because I'm like, okay, now I'm... Now I'm thinking about it. But oh the boy. only problem with calling a shot is sometimes you miss. And then oh, like, don't. Somebody, everybody's disappointed. Oh, God. Like, oh, God. In two God. to three hours, You're making I'm me blush on this down. podcast, Lisa. Please stop. Spare our later, listeners. Like, Spare our listeners. <laughs> okay. Move on. Move anyway, on. Anyway, long-term relationships with idealistic philosophers, they marry late in life or never marry at all. That's not true. I got married at 26. Okay, but what about me and MJ? Okay, you and MJ. The social philosophers, ENFPs. I love this uh, sentence he uses to describe you guys. He says, if God combined the bouncing energy of a cocker spaniel with the enthusiasm of a couple on their honeymoon, God would still only be halfway to duplicating your insatiable zest for life. Whoa. Uh, okay. I really get the sense that Dr. Avila wrote this book in order from the front cover to the back cover because as you go through the book, structure starts falling away and the things he says just gets more and more ridiculous. I mean, I like that. I like. I mean, that feels apt. I mean, I think that if you were a puppy, you would be you would be a cocker spaniel like Lafayette who lives downstairs. We yeah. love that guy. Um, social philosophers like Brad and MJ are scared of commitment. Which explains why you're still single at 30, 40, 50, and beyond. I mean, I was single till 27. Yeah, you were. You were. But it's more because, like, how Dr. Avila puts it is it's more because you're, like, into puppy love and you're into dating. Mm. Um, but then when it goes beyond that, you're like, mm. uh, Which was not the case not for Not the you. case for me. Maybe the case a little bit for MJ, though. Yeah, I think so. Um, the best love type for female social philosophers like MJ are growth teachers, ENFJ, or other social philosophers. So MJ, so neither of those is Peter. Peter, no. Yeah. Interesting. And uh, for male social philosophers, they are most compatible with other social philosophers, so you do well with MJ, or idealistic philosophers, which is me. All right. So we're compatible, according to Dr. Avila, we're compatible together. So as long as you're on this plane of existence, I'm going to stick it with you, Lisa. Thank you. But if MJ comes out of the pages... Oh, no! Oh, boy. <laughs> if your ideal love type is a social philosopher, where do you get them? Where do you grab them? Yeah. Um, social philosophers enjoy stimulating conversation and people... And like idealistic philosophers and mystic writers, they enjoy activities that revolve around psychology, philosophy, the arts, and helping others. I think it's so funny that Dr. Avila is a psychologist, and he's like, everybody, everybody's <laughs> super interested in talking about psychology, which I am, but I, I'm sure it cannot possibly be true for every person. I mean, I don't care about it. <laughs> Social flop, that is true. And I really have to force my hand on this podcast to talk about the stuff I want to talk about. I just want to talk about the details of the comics. Social philosophers seize every opportunity to make social contact. They love the spotlight and make excellent teachers and public speakers. I think, Brad, you are an awesome public speaker. I'm not, you know, not, he, not too shabby. He is the star of every podcast he's on. Sorry, Aaron. 
Perhaps a star of resin pictures. Um, Thanks, wife. He's he's great on panels, the panels that he's done. So I think you're a great public speaker. Thank you. Um, and I think you'd be a great teacher if you didn't have such a horrible experience with it. I mean, I did teach for two years. Yeah. And it was garbage. Yeah, but your students loved you. Yeah. We're uh, Facebook friends still. That's true. Um, <laughs> I can re- I can routinely find my social philosopher at art gallery openings, yeah. wine tastings, no. fundraisers, no. concerts. Sometimes. Lectures. Yeah. And plays. Yeah. Yeah, mm. to me, if you just change art gallery openings to Comic-Cons <laughs> and lectures sure. to Comic-Con panels uh, and wine tastings to drinking beer at Comic-Con panels. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think yeah. all of that applies this, to I'm okay with this. I'm okay with this. And I think it applies to MJ as well. It, it, it seems like it fits. Here's an interesting thing. and uh, He goes on to list more places. Um, dance classes. You've never been in a dance class. We thought about it, though. Pet shows. I do love pets. He does. And when he was a kid, oh, he no. would collect the centerfolds of dog fans and you, Lisa. put them on his wall. His mom's had them up for years. Yeah, well past college, those dog fancy I centerfolds. I saw them. I know you so did. Yeah, it was yeah. within the past decade they've come down. <laughs> Your parents have Damn finally it. gotten over you. I'm cool. Um, Journalist clubs. Yep. Many social philosophers are closet journalists. And you're not a closet journalist. You're a proud, out-of-the-closet pop culture writer. Yeah. Um, you're also at cultural festivals, a.k.a. Comic-Cons, and community events, a.k.a. Comic-Con. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. How to get a date with a social philosopher. Just compliment us on our length of our long boxes. Ooh. They're very long. <laughs> Always. It's not. It's not the length of the long It's box. the girth. It's the content of its characters. Oh, oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Social philosophers are always open to meeting new people. Their extroverted and perceiving nature encourages them to initiate conversations and talk openly about their values, beliefs, and preferences, especially when it has to do with movies and comic books and into a microphone, the last part I added. Once you get them talking... You may not be able to get them to stop. That's definitely true, Dr. Yeah. Avila. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. I think you should have even more degrees because of that, <laughs> <laughs> because of that statement. Do you want to hear your videos? Oh, These are the videos oh, my that videos appeal. in my collection? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm that afraid. That social philosophy. This is going to be interesting. All right, Brad bring it, bring MJ. it. White Palace, 1990. I don't think I've seen that. I haven't seen it either. The Lion King, 1994. Just recently, 2019. I haven't seen either. Well, I've seen the original, but it's been since I was a child. Okay. And you saw, did you see my production with my middle school production? I did see that, yes. Yeah. Very good. And you enjoyed it a lot. It was brilliantly directed. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Thelma and Louise, 1991. Now, that's just a great film. Yeah. I mean, I like that movie. It's a good Um, movie. And then Stand and Deliver, 1988. You know, I mean... I haven't seen White Palace. The others are fine, but I don't see how those are movies that engage with my personality. You'll find none of them on my top 100, which you can go to my mouth dork letterbox right now and take a look. Yeah. Well, considering he has only until 1999 and they have to be available available on VHS, yeah. maybe his <laughs> Hey, his my top five limited. right now, Lisa. Jaws, An American Werewolf in London, John Carpenter's The Thing, Miller's Crossing, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I wonder what MJ would think of those movies. I think she'd like them. I think, I think she'd she like them. She seems cool. This is, he He gives some suggestions for dates, which he didn't do for my personality. So we see that 
Like his structure is like falling apart. Um, mystery dinner theater. Are you into that? Uh, I've never done it, but sure. I think as long as it, there wasn't any audience participation, you are not a fan of audience participation. Depends on the night. Dancing. That's one that would be good for MJ. Yeah. Again, you know, we've, we've talked about doing a dance class, but we haven't really committed to it. We have? Don't, yeah, we don't have to be like that. We talked about it. We were going to do that swing dance class, remember, with Darren. Oh, yeah. I totally forgot about that. That was something I was doing more because I'm an obliger, and uh, Darren seemed into I it. I want to do swing. I think it would be fun. And you're so tall, you wouldn't have to throw me very high. Um, kite flying at a park or beach. I did once upon a time belong to a kite building class. Oh, that's true. I forgot. Child Brad. Um, but as a child, you wouldn't be able to do this. Bring a carafe of red wine and a slim volume of poetry. Uh, sure. Maybe if it was a thick volume of um, Stephen King short stories. Or or like a great omnibus from a Marvel collection. Yeah. Yeah. More like that. That's like poetry, though. Yeah. Hot tip for your social philosophers. He he numbers the first one and then doesn't number any of the other ones, huh. which I think is hilarious. Number one, use your imagination to design unique dates. We see Peter do this for Mary Jane when he swings her to the top of the Empire State Building. Yeah, and you know he makes like web slings for her to you know to rest upon and the skyscrapers and all yeah. that stuff. That's a that's a go to Spidey move. Yeah. Um. They like highly verbal sex. Oh. Where you use names a lot, real or imaginary. Red Sonia. <laughs> oh, my feelings are hurt. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, men consistently rate the female social philosopher as one of their top two, the other being dutiful hostess, ESFJ, as their ideal mates. Hmm. Which you're not a dutiful hostess. I am not. <laughs> I am not a dutiful hostess, and I'm not a social philosopher. No, but I do think that there's something to MJ is supposed to be this ideal girl that every guy wants to be with, and she's a social philosopher, so that kind of makes sense. Both male and female social philosophers may find it difficult to commit to one person, especially if that person is Spider Man. No, she doesn't have a hard time committing. Um, anyway, among the top three love types well, most I, reluctant to wed. I don't want to distract us, but I think she did have some trouble committing, as we saw in Parallel Lives. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So it, it still works. What about you? Did you have trouble committing to this? Uh, no, no. no. But, but again, I made that decision fairly late into my adulthood. Yeah. Uh, and I, I do think I had trouble committing on dates before meeting you. Yeah. I lo uh, Once he met me, he locked it down. Yeah, locked it down. Um, among the top three love types most reluctant to wed um, are the wheeler-dealer, ESTPs, and the performer, ESFPs. Because they have a desire to be flexible, keep options open, and they are hesitant to marry forever and ever. Do you feel that you have that in common no. with the wheeler-dealers? Okay, good. I'm just checking. Okay, so finally, Peter Parker. He is a caretaker, ISFJ. Starting and building a family are top priorities for caretakers, often more important than career or other interests. Although they may prosper in their chosen profession, very little in life gives them more pleasure than taking care of their children and their spouse, or maybe their Aunt May. 
<laughs> we see him struggling with that a lot. And <laughs> it's the crux of one more day. Yeah. Um, for caretakers, love represents safety, responsibility, commitment, and ultimately marriage and children. At the beginning of a relationship, caretakers are cautious because they want to make sure their mate is loyal, stable, and conscientious. Do you feel like? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is all very Peter Parker. Yeah. Once in a relationship, their devotion is unwavering, even if the relationship is lousy. So they're most likely to stay in a relationship even when it is not working. I think this also is accurate to Peter. Yes. Um, Male caretakers prosper with other caretakers or administrators, ISTJs. Neither of them MJ. Neither of them are MJ. That's right. Where to meet caretakers. Now get ready to hear the creepiest list you have ever heard of where to find caretakers. Funeral parlors. (laughs) Uh, Sewers. No, nothing like that. Um, Cooking classes. Craft. For, For this personality, he gave a bulleted list. He didn't do this for any of the other personalities. <laughs> Dr. Avila cares not for format. Mm-mm. He is structureless. Um, craft shops and fairs, picnics and housewarming sponsored by community groups, wedding receptions, horse shows and associations. Here's where it gets creepy. Children's stores, activities and entertainment Centers. Caretakers may be single moms or dads. Well, that's not creepy. Or they may enjoy spending time with kids they know and love. That's creepy. Um, <laughs> PTA. That's huh. a great place to meet single parents. Yeah, sure. Though it would be creepy if you didn't have a kid and you're just yeah, going to PTA yeah. meetings. This also sounds like what uh, a serial killer would be doing. Mm-hmm. Yarn and needlepoint classes, pet yep. clubs and shows. Co-ed softball teams, bowling leagues, county fairs, very wholesome playgrounds, church picnic and socials, and Sierra Singles, a national organization that sponsors outdoor events for singles. Uh, All joking aside, this does feel like very square business that Peter would fit right in. And also Captain America, I feel like. Yeah, a little bit. Now here is his number one tip. Number one for... Bagging a caretaker like Peter Parker or Steve Rogers, I've decided just now, is to walk a dog. And he (laughs) says, borrow one if you need to and show a lot of affection towards it in the caretaker's presence. This is nefarious. And he even gives um, uh, preferred breeds. Caretaker's favorites include cute and cuddly dogs, such as the Golden Retriever or the Cocker Spaniel. I feel like this guy's on the board of Cocker Spaniels. You know, just when I start to feel like I'm falling in line with what Love Types is saying, he then turns it into that, you know, that that hook, that weapon to capture a significant other, and I feel all skeevy. I can't imagine meeting someone walking their dog and then later finding out that that was not their dog. Yeah, that'd be that. You have to have a, a a reasoning behind that. You have to have a story. I know. Now, even weirder. Aside from animals, caretakers also love anything to do with kids. Ask your caretaker friend to join you at the toy store to help you buy gifts for your nieces and oh nephews, or if you don't have any tiny relatives, buy toys for a boy or girl in your neighborhood. Oh God. 
To me, uh, I, like you're uh, going to accidentally bag a pedophile and you're uh, going to be so embarrassed. This is so strange. Okay. I, I want to hear about his videos, though. What, what videos speak to Peter? Okay, sure. Um, the videos include, now, these sound like a bunch of movies your dad would like. Um, Sleepless in Seattle. Oh, dude, yes. Ordinary People. No. I don't know that movie. That's it. I, I, already I'm lost because Ordinary People and Sleepless in Seattle are very different types of movies. One has Mary Tyler Moore in it, Ordinary People. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dances with Wolves. Okay. Um, absolute Power. Um, okay. This is so weird. The whole video thing is bonkers. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, um, I, why would he even include this? But this is not our first relationship know, book to include lists of videos. I know, I know. But this so one is, feels really way off the mark, Lisa. Hot dating tip. Be nice and gentle and get an introduction. And Peter did get an introduction to MJ through um, his aunt. Mary. But I think like that 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 applies to all of all types. I don't know if that's a single type. No, like what caretakers want is someone to vouch mm. for that person where other people are just comfortable meeting someone on the street. Strangers. Yeah, meeting strangers and going to cooking classes and Walking a fake dog. So what dog. you're saying is that Peter is not swiping left on anybody. No. Okay. He'd much rather um, be a little bit more traditional. Introduced to by, MJ by MJ's aunt, friend of Aunt May. Exactly. Okay, that's okay, what okay. I'm saying. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's what Dr. Avila is saying. Okay. Interesting. Um, okay. Woo your caretaker with an old-fashioned courtship. Bring flowers, candy, do long walks on the beach. And cuddle by the fireplace. That all just sounds like nice things to do. I'm into that. Um, sex tip. Sex tip with uh, caretakers. I, I keep forgetting what I'm talking about. I'm talking about caretakers. As lovers, caretakers are gentle and tender, not too experimental. I don't know if that's true for Peter. He was kissing upside down. But willing <laughs> to please their mate. So their game, it sounds like. You know, I don't know. Uh, we should at some point read the McFarlane Michelini era of Spider-Man oh, because there is kinky? some webbing kinkiness going on between Peter and MJ. How can you not? Especially when your webbing has gone internal. Oh well, back then it wasn't internal. Oh wow. Okay. Um, female caretakers may experience embarrassment or guilt. Not male caretakers, just female. When it comes to sex, especially if they come from a traditional conservative background, it's very important not to rush it. Okay. Don't rush bedding Peter Parker because you'll feel bad. Um, caretakers are the epitome of the perfect mother, regardless of gender, and take a special interest into catering to the needs of their spouse and children, or their Aunt May. They have a strong sense of duty and responsibility and will often stay in a marriage that's gone astray. Once they commit to someone, Caretakers feel that leaving is the ultimate act of betrayal. Now, in this comic book... It's going to get interesting. It's going to get interesting. But I think that it's because he's being, like, he's being, like, married mentally to Aunt May. Yeah, yeah, In a yeah. big way. Yeah, there's some uh, Oedipal Electra stuff going on here. Hell yeah. The male caretaker can be the perfect stay-at-home husband... And is as handy with a diaper as he is with a wrench. Another great Dr. Avila turn of the phrase, a bon mot. Handy with a diaper as he is with a wrench. Yikes. So how much of this do you think we're going to be able to apply 
to one more day, Braddy. I, I, I mean, I think I think we're going to be uh, able to talk about a lot of it. Um, you know, a lot about one more day is focused on Peter Parker exclusively, and MJ really doesn't come into the story until the last moments. Mm-hmm. But those last moments are crucial to their relationship. Yeah, and I think Peter missteps in such a profound way. Yeah. yeah. Let's get into it. Okay, let's do it. The infamous One More Day, written by J. Michael Straczynski and Joe Casada, with pencils provided by Casada as well. The story is compiled of four chapters that span the course of three separate Spider-Man titles, Amazing Spider-Man's numbers 544 and 545, Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man number 24, and Sensational Spider-Man number 41, published towards the end of 2007. And again, just months after Sensational Spider-Man Annual number one, which we talked about last week. J. Michael Straczynski at the time was probably best known as the creator of and showrunner of the sci-fi series Babylon 5 and had been writing the Amazing Spider-Man comics since 2001. I was a big fan of the first half of that run, but once he started introducing organic web shooters and Gwen Stacy clones, I bailed before One More Day even happened. Uh, Joe Casada was this New York City kid who worked himself up the ranks from go-to artist talent to the editor of the Marvel Knights imprint and eventually the editor-in-chief in the year 2000. By 2010, he was crowned chief creative officer of Marvel Entertainment and left the editor-in-chief gig a year later. Next to Stan Lee, he held the position of editor-in-chief longer than anyone. Wow. Yeah. Now, here's the basic plot of One More Day. It's pretty simple, and it comes straight from Wikipedia. Nice. What we call deep research. (laughs) Yes. After his Aunt May has been shot at the end of Civil War, Spider-Man seeks help to save her life. He encounters the demon Mephisto, who offers to save her life if Spider-Man gives him his marriage. Spider-Man and his wife Mary Jane agree, and this part of their history is erased so that effectively they have never been married. Not only does One More Day dissolve their marriage, but it also alters the memory of every human on the planet, erasing their knowledge of Spider-Man's secret identity, which he revealed during Civil War. It removes the concept of organic web shooters, resurrects both Harry Osborn and Flash Thompson, and introduces a couple of new female romantic potentials in Lily and Carly. Two total bays. Which leads right into the weekly series of Spider-Man titles called Brand New Day. Okay. So that's one more day. And, you know, it is a massive command from editorial. Like, the editorial axe has never been cut so viciously in comics, as far as I'm concerned. It's I feel, crazy. I feel sorry for the writers who, one, married Peter Parker and MJ in the first place. Stanley. Stanley. And two... Actually, uh, I think it was, was it Jerry Dugan at the time? I might have got that wrong. Don't check our work. Don't, don't check, check our, our work. work. That's impolite. Um, and who had Peter Parker tell the world his identity because that was a huge yeah. thing. I mean, and this then is a massive retcon, and it's a magical retcon with a character that Spider-Man rarely has interactions with, Mephisto. He was more of a Silver Surfer villain, more of a Cosmic-y Thor character. Guy. And it's it's weird that this book ends with Peter Parker and Mary Jane making a deal with a devil-like character. 
Like, yeah. that's a hell of a climax for a Spider-Man book. Right. <laughs> All right. So, Lisa, where do you want to start? Well, this book starts where Peter always starts, racked with guilt. Yeah, and as shame. we've talked about, shame is like his key motivating factor. You know, it stems right out of Amazing Fantasy 15. And talking about stagnation, Peter has never been able to get over that. Right. And now May is in a hospital bed. And he keeps on going like, it's all my fault. If it wasn't for me, you know, or if we had run away, May wouldn't have been shot by this kingpin goon guy. He's not wrong. And he says, I'd give anything, do anything to bring her back from the edge to have just one more day with her. Right. So So that's the source of the title. And that's his entire motivation through this entire piece is he'll do Literally, literally anything so that his 87-year-old aunt can die of natural causes. Well, and so he can free himself of the guilt of causing another relative to die because of his actions. Right, right. So now they have May in the hospital under a pseudonym because he has to hide their identity because of the whole Civil War thing. And they have... She has no insurance. They have no ability to pay. And then the doctor, Dr. Fine, indicates that without payment, she'll be moved to the charity ward. And apparently the charity ward is just a dirty closet where they let people just straight up die. And Peter is having none of it. And so the doctor's like, well, if you can get access to some kind of insurance or bottomless checkbook, there'd be a slim... Slim chance that she may make it. So the first person he goes to is Tony Stark, the guy he started Civil War, partnered with, but at the halfway point, they separated in very uh, uh, dark ways. They became antagonists. Right, and I think it's really important to to say that MJ is there the whole time, but to go to Tony Stark is a decision he made in his head alone. MJ, the extrovert, initially says, like, starts offering up ideas, even the bad ideas. But then, like, her going, like, well, I have some stuff at home. I can sell some things. We can find some money. And Peter shuts her down. And Peter shuts her down and doesn't even say what he's going to do. Because he's the hero. He has to solve everything. And he's an introvert. He'd rather process his idea internally than say it out loud to get it bounced back or shut down. So he leaves MJ at the bedside of Aunt May. He goes looking for Tony Stark. That's right. They have an exchange of fisticuffs. uh, And Peter Parker at this point has gone through that weird evolution that J. Michael Straczynski did with him. He's got the internal web shooters and he's never unloaded his internal web shooters to such a degree before. And he completely- I've never been so grossed out in a comic book. (laughs) Him going like, I- Emptied everything I have inside me until, until, until. And I'm like, ugh. Tony Stark. It's disgusting. a great image. I love the, the image that Casada illustrates of Tony Stark cocooned in Peter Parker's organic webbing. Right. Yuck. Right. <laughs> and then Peter tries to lay the blame on Tony. And he goes like, I trusted you. I let you get close to me. You are a father figure to me. Right? Because Peter is just layers of daddy issues and it was because of tony stark he exposed his identity because of that he, they're in the position yeah, exactly, that they are right. exactly um so tony apologizes but insists that he 
he can't help. He's like, you're a criminal now. You need to turn yourself in. I can't give you money and be found out to have supplied cash to a criminal. Right, right. That being said, he does send Jarvis in his steed eventually. And Jarvis does write a blank check for Aunt May. But that doesn't save her life. That just gets her out of the charity ward. Right. So Peter returns to the hospital. MJ informs him that May's state is unchanged. There is little brain activity. And Dr. Fine can't stall much longer. She's going to take that long trip down. They're going to have to move some brooms to make room for May in the charity ward. And Dr. Fine, his uncle was saved by Spider-Man sometime in the past. Right, and that's why he's stalling. And and that's why he's stalling and helping Peter out. And um, Peter is getting so frustrated that before Jarvis shows up with the halo pass of a blank check, Peter is telling MJ, like, why don't I just go out and steal the money? Yeah, he's ready to abandon all principle. What does it matter? Because I'm already a criminal. And he, he says, like, I'm already a wanted criminal, so what's the difference? I'd sell my soul if I thought it would help her. And then down in hell, there's this little ding, 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 ding exactly. dinner bell that's just been rung for Mephisto, who has actually been hanging out Aunt May's uh, hospital window in the form of a pigeon. Yeah, I totally missed that. <laughs> I do not win any observant awards. So, yeah, now is Mephisto's time. This is his gateway into uh, making the deal with the devil. But first... But first, the issue ends with Peter's narration saying, I'll find a way to save Aunt May if it means storming the gates of hell itself. So he keeps invoking the devil. Right, right, right. And... He can't go right to hell. He's got to have an in-between. He goes to Doctor Strange, who has pulled off miraculous feats in the past. Right. He's, you know, healed the sick. So, you know, maybe Doctor Strange can bring a little life to Aunt May. Right. So this shows to show Peter's judging caretaker personality, where he's out of loyalty to Aunt May He's willing to compromise pretty much anything. Right. Peter, he goes in search of a miracle, and he arrives at the Sanctum Sanctorum. And the first thing that Doctor Strange does is tell him the story about his hands. Yeah, the fact that he was in this car crash, he destroyed his hands, he went searching for answers for a miracle cure, he found the Ancient One, and the Ancient One says, yo, I can't fix your hands, but I can show you a new path that you could Right. And Dr. Strange is like, had he simply healed me, there would have been no one to stand between the forces of dark and light with the intercession when the intercession was most needed. And Peter is like, I am having none of that. It's quite an ego on Strange. If if you're going to say (laughs) that my aunt's death is part of a greater plan, I'm just not going to accept it. Major judger. Yeah. yeah, Right. There is right and there is wrong. And Aunt May dying by a bullet is wrong. Well, and he says to Strange and to other people um, that if Aunt May is meant to die of old age or whatever, he can accept that. But he can't accept the fact that she's going to die by a bullet that was meant for him. Because it would still be his fault. Because he can't handle the, the guilt of that. Right. So Dr. Strange does a Latin incantation that allows Peter to be many places at once so that he can ask 
anyone and everyone imaginable yeah. for help. Reed Richards, Professor X, Doctor Doom, Galactus, whoever. Right. And all of them say, like, sorry, dude. Yeah, too late. Sorry, Spider-Man. There's nothing we can do. And Doctor Strange tries to put a button on it going, like, the cycle of life is essential to the core of existence, to the survival of the universe. To fight that cycle is to fight the very forces of creation itself. So everybody has been telling Peter, like, this is part of destiny. This is part of Aunt May's plan. There's not an existence where Aunt May makes it. And then knock, knock, knock. Hi, Satan. Right. Or Peter, one of his monsters. I you know? love I love this because Peter was like, well, I speak Latin. I'm a scientist, right? He's got that S. He's a censor, so he's a scientist. So he just does his own incantation in Latin to go back to when May was shot. But he doesn't know that he's not going to have an, a physical form. So the night walkers come after him and they, they munch on yeah. his non-physical form. And Doctor Strange pulls him out. But his, like, psychic self is all, like, chewed up and stuff. And so the the Nightwalkers exist to prevent anyone from... Doing what Peter's doing. Trying to stop destiny. And what's important about that moment is that he can't do anything else. He's done. He has to accept the death of Aunt May. He's going to have to confront his guilt, his shame uh, of, of her death. But then that's when Satan shows up. Exactly. Dr. Strange. And again, it's not Satan. It's Mephisto. He's one of the soldiers of Satan, blah, blah, blah. He's Mephistopheles from Faust. Right. Right. So the question is, if Mephisto didn't interfere, would Peter Parker have taken Dr. Strange's advice and stopped blaming himself for the inevitable? He would have had no options. He would have had to accepted his role in Aunt May's death, and he would have had to have moved on like every other human. Right. But then again, Mephisto. Right. So Peter walks out of Dr. Strange's office, the Sanctum Sanctorum, with Dr. Strange's words echoing in his mind, we all die, we can't change it. And then a mysterious little red-headed girl says, he was right, you can't change that, but I can. Dun, dun, dun. Well, who's that little girl? It's Mephisto. No, it's not Mephisto. Well, I mean, I mean it, it is, is Mephisto, Mephisto wearing the face of, of somebody who's not to be. Wop, wop. Can I wop, wop? The non-existence of a little girl. Sure. Okay, mom, mom. <laughs> <laughs> but Mephisto, in the form of this little girl, uh, takes Peter through a tour of various lives. And he doesn't come out and say that these are all Peter Parkers that could have been, but it's pretty obvious. Right, right. So one of them uh, had a tough time at high school and... All of his peers made fun of him, and he eventually became a game designer for first-person shooter video games. Yeah, it's a it's a very anti-video uh, game geek depiction. Right, and uh, so... It's a little judgy, JMS. Yeah, and then he finds a rich guy who offers to give him a ride, and uh, he has many patents. He's made a ton of money, but... He lost his shot at love with his high school crush, and he would trade everything that he has in this world for another shot with that girl. One more day is the It's a Wonderful Life of the Spider-Man 
comic universe. Right, right. And it's way sadder. But it's the little girl who articulates best the crux of Peter's issue. Because the little girl, she's like, I take after my dad. I'm super smart. But I wish I took after my mom because my mom is beautiful and fun-loving. And um, he's, like, trying to help her find her parents. And she, she, she's like, what do you care? Like, what if I never grow up? And she goes on to say, you know what your problem is? You're selfish. You're selfish and self-involved. And you always put your pain at the center of the universe. True, true, true. As long as you go to sleep with a clear conscience, you don't care who else has to pray the, pay the price for that good night's sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's pretty cutting. It's cutting because that has is what Peter's been doing his whole life. He doesn't really care about the people he's saving as long as he doesn't have to worry about I them. I think that's an extreme take on it. That's the take that Mephisto lays on it, but it is based on a kind of truth, and it's a truth that makes Peter Parker as a character interesting. The idea that from his powers came a tragedy that he could have easily prevented and chose not to, and ever since then, he's been trying to make amends for that poor human decision, and it eats away at his soul, and it will always eat away at his soul, and now he's presented with that exact same scenario again. Right, so... And he can't deal. He can't deal. So Peter is eventually led to this mysterious woman and the mysterious woman was like, some cultures have these dream selves, alternate futures for directions your path didn't take. And that's, that's, those are the creepy people you've been talking to. And he's like, uh, when was I, in what existence was I a little girl? And like she's Peter's like, so crazy dense. <laughs> he because he only has one thing in his mind, yeah. his pain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. His pain. Mm-hmm. So he is deaf to any kind of reason. The redheaded child transforms into a mysterious redheaded woman who then reveals herself to be Mephisto. He tells Peter Parker that he's not interested in his soul. He's the only one who can save Aunt May. But he is the only one who can save Aunt May, and there is a bargain that must be had. Peter says, well, I can't make any decisions like that because I am in a relationship. I need to talk to Mary Jane about it. And as they've been walking, they've been approaching this hotel room. Mephisto opens the door and we see that Mary Jane has already been talking to Mephisto. That's right. That's right. He's been simultaneously bargaining with her. And what the bargain is, you get this great panel Mm -hmm. where Mephisto says, I want your marriage. Right. And Peter starts telling Mephisto to shove it. But it's actually Mary Jane that encourages him to hear Mephisto out. And I think that that's really interesting. Because what I think that this decision comes down to is a clash between Peter's judger side and MJ's perceiver side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Peter is... Things are black and white, a world where good versus evil, where Aunt May dies by a bullet that was meant for me is unjust. And Mary Jane goes like, there is a sliding scale here. There is a situation where the best outcome is that Aunt May dies. So the fact that Mary Jane is willing to hear Mephisto out 
opens up this possibility for Peter to go like, well, maybe I will listen to a demon. And they have till midnight tomorrow to make a decision. That's right. So they have 24 hours. One more day. That's right. And the way that um, Quesada illustrates that, you know, they, 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 they well, they, they have a conversation. I guess we should talk about the conversation right. so first. The, right. So the next issue starts with Aunt May is still in the hospital bed. Hanging on to the edge of life. Peter wakes up and MJ is not in the bed, but she is in the bathroom crying and weeping. Because she's already made the decision. You can tell. No, I don't think she has. I don't think she has. I think that she understands where Peter is coming from and she does want to have a discussion. But don't you think she knows where it's going? Yeah, because she and, knows Peter. And, she's going, and because she knows Peter, she's going to push it there first before he can. Right. To save her own emotions. Well, the first question, thing she brings into question is, can Mephisto do this? Yeah. Can Mephisto end our marriage? And the way Peter answers that is, I don't think, I don't think Mephisto can do it. But if he can do it, this is all we have, right? This is our only option. That of course Mephisto can do it, Peter. You saw him hanging out with Thanos. I think it's funny because uh, MJ's decision like when she gives her like long speech at the end, she's like, he probably can't. <laughs> like, I don't know. I think he can. <laughs> so, but MJ gives the perceiver argument. Like May has led a good life, a long life. And part of that is because of you. You have kept her alive. You've kept her going. You have fought for her, especially in these last couple of weeks. Kept her out of the clutches of Dr. Octopus's grabby hands. You've done as much as anyone could hope to ever do. You honored her. You loved her. And sooner or later, we all die. Yeah, and by the way, what do you think Aunt May would do in this situation? Uh, she'd say, let me go, dude. Yeah, yeah. So, so MJ asks the question, like, what if this is just her time? So that is reflecting her perceiver moral relativism. Like, yeah, it's unjust for her to die of murder, but is that, is an 87 year old woman dying of murder more unjust than our, us losing our legacy, the legacy of our marriage. Yeah, and our possible future. Right. So Peter has already, Peter's the one who's already come to a decision. And he's like, internally, because he's an Through introvert. Through captions. Introvert. He's like, it's the same old refrain. That bullet was for me. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. I'm responsible. He can't let go of that. And here is... The line that, in my opinion, makes MJ's decision. This is what breaks MJ. I, so in terms of Aunt May dying of that bullet, I couldn't live with that, MJ. I couldn't, I just couldn't live with myself. I'd break myself in two. And here's the thing. That's not true, Peter. You could live with it. You have been living with this decision already with Uncle Ben. And this would eat you up and you would go through hell if Aunt May passed away. But you would have Mary Jane there by your side. You would have somebody to share the pain that you couldn't share back in the day when you were a teenager. Right. But by saying that, yeah. that was like, well, it damns, it clearly, damns their relationship. Clearly, you can't live with 
Aunt May dying, but you can with live without our marriage. Yeah, it's a huge slap in the face of MJ. She's crushed by that. She's got to be. And she throws it back in his face. He's because she can turn his logic on him. She goes like, "Well, by that logic, I'm responsible. I'm responsible for breaking you in two. And she goes, "Don't do that to me, Peter. Don't put me in that position." So. So Peter goes like, well, I'm not going to do it unless you say it's okay, right? So he goes like, if it was up to me solely, I would do it. But right. I wouldn't do it if you say no. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he's just pushing the responsibility off of himself. It's so gross. Such a jerk. <laughs> but but also understandable, and it is in keeping with his character. Right. So they have, at that point, they have less than 24 hours to decide and so for t- that 24 hours, those are the pages, those are the panels where they're just holding each other. Yeah, it's so brutal. And Peter tries to like reminisce and MJ is like, shut up. Yeah. Just shut just, up. Let's just enjoy this cuddle, this last cuddle. Right. So she, like the way that MJ agrees is literally the two syllables, uh-huh. Like, Peter's like, is this what we're going to do? And she's sobbing, and she says, uh-huh. Oh, oh, brutal. Awful. Awful. Then Mephisto pops up. And so Peter's like, how does this work? Mephisto's like, your marriage is but a stitch in time. All I do is pull that stitch out, and you're not even going to feel it. Yeah, you won't even remember it. Right. And um, and now we start hearing this bong, Yeah. Bong. And, and And Mary Jane's like, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. You got to do something else too. Oh no, we can't skip this part because this is the best. What, what, so, what? the the chime starts going. Mephisto's like, "That's the sound of your aunt dying. You got to decide." And then MJ is like, "Well, what are we really doing this for? To what end? Like Peter's life is still ruined. The world still knows." Yeah, that's what I wanted to that, get to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, so she asks him, "Why? Why our marriage?" And he says. It's because yours is the rarest love yeah, of Mephisto. all. Yeah, Pure, unconditional, and made holy in the eyes of who I hate most. The supreme being. God, right? Yeah. So he's going like, through marriage, like this is a very Christian idea. <laughs> through marriage, your relationship is sanctioned, your, your wed be before the eyes of God. And then he goes on to say, a love like yours comes but once in a millennia. So Peter Parker and Mary Jane's love is, even though they're not necessarily compatible by Dr. Avila and the love type system, their love is something that is so perfect. Cosmically grand. Exactly. That like to take this kind of love away from God, God's creation. Oh, so delicious to Mephisto. Yum, yum, yum. It's funny though, because like, Underneath, like our love, I consider our love to be like so profoundly rare. And I wonder if every every happy marriage feels like this. I wish they knew what we knew. Exactly yeah, yeah, how yeah. perfect sure. our love is. But uh-huh. so I would love to have that, even if it had to be justified by, by a demon. Yeah. I would love, I would love Satan to look me in my eyes and go like, "What you have is, is, is cosmically really special." Rare. Yeah. 
Uh, and I would just be high And that's when MJ, though, jumps in and says, well, I need one more thing. So Peter, no, Peter starts to go like, I don't know. Maybe if it's like God's love. He's like, I don't know. And um, so she goes, she agrees and she makes her own conditions. And she says, you're going to give Peter a chance at happiness by hiding his identity again. And um, he's like, why would I do that? And she's like, because I have something to offer you. And that's when she whispers in her ear, in Mephisto's ear. Yeah, do you want to know what she whispers into the ear? Because it's told in the sequel comic one moment in time. Ooh, spoilers. I mean, we can we can just jump ahead and we can okay, hear what that is. give it to me. What did she whisper? So Joe Casada wrote this comic three years later. Okay. Uh, he didn't do the art this time. Um, Paolo Rivera did it. Uh, and and it opens with this conversation and with a uh, where we get to hear Mary Jane's words nice. to Mephisto, nice. and they are this: "I know Peter; he will never make this deal with you, never, ever, unless I ask him to. But if I do, this is the end of it. You will leave him alone for the rest of his days." And then Mephisto responds. Agreed, as far as I'm concerned. Nice. Well, that I mean, that's kind of lame, I think. Because, like, Mephisto has barely had anything to do with Peter up until this point. He's already taken away, like, from God, like, the best love that's ever happened in the past thousand years. Well, what's interesting about that is Mephisto gets that. That's all he wants. And he doesn't care at all what happens to Peter and MJ after this moment. He's disinterested. And after this moment in time... Mephisto doesn't even exist in the continuity, right? So when he undoes their marriage and he gives his identity back to Peter and he gives the web shooters back to Peter and he resurrects Harry and Flash, continuity-wise, it's like this comic never even happened. That's so selfish. It's Well, I just think about Joe Quesada. Like, yeah. what a jerk move, <laughs> editor-in-chief, but fascinating. Right. Oh, my God. So because of what MJ just whispered whispered to Mephisto, she turns to Peter and she's the one to encourage him to take the deal. And he starts to waffle last minute, but she's like, be the hero, right? He's a caretaker. Be the caretaker. Take the deal. So he says, do it. And um, Mephisto is like, oh, I'm kind of surprised. I'm surprised you took this deal. (laughs) And uh, he's like, you know who you forgot to ask about? Oh, God. Who is the redheaded girl? And he transforms into the little girl. Right. And the little girl says, I'm a possibility yet to come. I'm your child. Right. So think about Peter's little caretaker heart. There's nothing more important to him than family. You've just aborted your baby, Peter. Oh, man. I mean, God hates that. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a hell of a moment to end this book on right. where your hero, Spider Man, makes a deal with the devil, and in doing so, saves his kind old aunt, eradicates his marriage, and murders the child that never was. But it's kind of like Memento, because he's like, well, I'm not going to remember it anyway. To me, yes, it's exactly like that. And from Casada's point of view, it, it you know he wipes his hands of what was frustrating him over the last 20 years of Spider-Man comics, Mary Jane and Peter being together. And now he's cleared the air. He's brought back the original Ditko Lee Romita cast of characters. And he can you know, play in a sandbox that he played in as a child. Mm-hmm. It's a very selfish act from Casada. That being said, I think this is a excellent dilemma for Peter Parker as a character. And 
reading it in 2019, this story is not as painful as it as it as the idea of it was to me back in 2007. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's a wonderful life with an even darker ending. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So I think it does a great job of speaking to who Peter Parker and Mary Jane are as characters. He doesn't have them fall out of love or have either of them cheat. Like, literally the only thing that could come between them is magic. Yeah, and... It's very un-Spider-Man-y, and it does destroy a relationship that has been existing for 20-plus years, and I can totally understand why fans at the time were enraged. But it doesn't undermine... The character. The sacredness of what they have. Yeah, 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 yeah. So MJ gives, while the bong, bong, bong of the, the timer going up, like, MJ gives her final, final little soliloquy, and it comes down to, like, she still doesn't really believe that Mephisto can do it. And so she says, I know in my heart of hearts that you and I were always meant to be together. Whatever and- he throws at us, whatever he does, whatever he undoes, it doesn't matter. So there's no power in the universe big enough to keep Mary Jane and Peter Parker apart. Not the devil, not God, not anybody. And so she has this faith that ultimately... They'll find each other again. And then you turn the page Mm -hmm. and you have this gorgeous collage double spread splash page. Yeah. And we see Peter Parker on the other side of the door with MJ's aunt when MJ first appeared and said, face it, Tiger, you just hit the jackpot. You get to see it from her point of view. You get to see Spider-Man and disco Mary Jane swinging through the skies. You get to see Peter Parker and Mary Jane riding tandem together. You get to see them smooching. You get to see Mary Jane watching TV with Aunt May. You get to see an image of their wedding day as the sun sets behind them. And in the bottom right-hand corner of the splash page, we see the moment from Sensational Spider-Man Annual Number 1 to have and to hold of black-suited Peter Parker bringing Mary Jane up to the top of the Empire State Building and saying, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. And then you turn the page on that splash page, it's their final embrace Mm -hmm. in total darkness. Mary Jane saying, face it, tiger, dot, dot, dot. And then a caption of, you just hit the jackpot. Final bong on the next page, Peter Parker awakens and he's rushing downstairs. And it's like he's a child again. He's living with Aunt May. Who is fine. Who is fine, cooking breakfast. And he's scarfing down her pancakes and he's off to to run and meet up with Flash at a party. And there's Harry, surprise. There's some new girls. We see Mary Jane in the party. She's sad. She's sad looking. She gets in an elevator and she goes, disappears. And Peter and MJ never exchange a word. And there's a big cheers, like at the end, a toast. And then the toast is to a brand new day. Which launches a weekly series of Spider-Man comics from that point forward. So in this context, in this final, these final two pages, their final embrace, what does Face It Tiger, you just hit the jackpot mean? I mean, the way I read it is she's saying we had a life. You hit the jackpot. We had that collage. We had that splash page. You can't take that away, even if it's magically erased. Yeah. Readers, don't worry. What you read still exists. Yeah. And. Kind of. She's the one, because of her decision, 
he gets what he really wants. Yeah. It, which is Aunt May being alive. Which is kind of gross. It's super gross. Yeah. It, I have very complicated feelings regarding One More Day. One, it reads really, really well. And it reads tragic. And it is incredibly compelling. And Casada's art is is stunning. Um, but it, it it is also hurtful. And as somebody who does really enjoy the relationship of Peter Parker and Mary Jane, I mean, it like it's I got emotional reading this comic, and I was shocked. Same. I and it wasn't like I just got angry. I got super sad when I hit that splash page. Like I welled up. Yeah, same. And where I got really emotional when I was putting my notes together mm. and going like, well, what does it really mean? by Mary Jane giving this to him. Yeah. And denying something that in her, according to her sliding scale of what is right and what is wrong, is not is not what she wants. No, right, right, right. And right. that's the jackpot, that she's mm -hmm. willing to sacrifice their life together for- Her his, happiness, for, for his, his happiness. happiness. Right. Yeah, and man, that is messed up. But- as we've been saying, it is in tone with how we've known Peter Parker since his inception. Right, and so in um, The Amazing Spider-Man, Peter Parker and Mary Jane are still not together. Well, right now, we are in 2019, this was published in 2007, so we're over a decade since this event. Mary Jane and Peter Parker have just started dating again. Oh. Uh, Nick Spencer uh, is writing the Amazing Spider-Man series. And what's interesting about that is in Amazing Spider-Man number one, when they relaunched it with Spencer and Ryan Otley, they recreated, they reintroduced their relationship by going back to the memory of Sensational Spider-Man annual number one. And Otley redraws Salvador Lorca's scenes from that book to, to showcase uh, one of their most romantic moments. Mm -hmm. And Mary Jane in that book says, what you learn is like, wh why do they separate in the continuity as it exists post this magical thing? It's not because of Mephisto. It's because Peter Parker was always going to endanger the lives of Mary Jane and her family. And Mary Jane was terrified of the fear of that. And Amazing Spider-Man number one under Nick Spencer, it's her coming back to terms with like, well, this is also my life. These are my decisions. It's not just Peter Parker's decisions. And I do love you and we do belong together. Okay. And so that's where they are right now in the books. And, you know, it's still very melodramatic and they're not married again or what have you. But if Mephisto gets between them again, I'm going to lose it. Well, guess what? There have been some encounters with Peter Parker and Mephisto since this storyline, but they've been mostly for jokey reasons. <laughs> uh, you know, after this, Dan Slott, took it that Dan Slott wrote majority of the past decade of Spider-Man and he didn't do much with Peter Parker and Mary Jane. He did some stuff, but not a lot. Okay. And it, it's, it's mostly been, you know, swinging bachelor lifestyle for Peter Parker over the last 10, 10 plus years. This is a fascinating place to press pause on the relationship of yeah. Peter Parker and Mary Jane with episode three. Uh, before we move on though, we got to talk about what we've learned uh, about ourselves, what we've learned about Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson in these issues. What can we apply to our own relationships? What do we think these two need to do to reconnect, to get to those Nick Spencer, Ryan Otley issues that we're currently on the stands? 
To me, I take away, like, if I was Mary Jane, I would feel constantly taken for granted because of what Peter Parker prioritizes over her. It's a good thing that her memory is erased of this moment and right. Peter's memory. Because like, she could become a supervillain in this moment. Yeah. I, I mean, I think knowledge of this decision going forward would make the book something uh, not possible. Untenable. Un- yeah. 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 Like, you have to erase this from the timeline, right? You you cannot address this anymore, really. Right. If you want to enjoy the lives of Peter and Mary Jane. Yeah, because it's... it's too tragically sad. So and if you read one moment in time, Casada really wraps up and says, hey, uh, true believers, it's done. Forget about it. Let's move on. If you look That's at- That's unfair a little yeah, bit. But if you look at this from Dr. Avila's perspective, the clash of a judger and a perceiver is something that, like, is an enormous obstacle because a judger is not someone who can be flexible. So it's always the perceiver Hmm. that has to be the one to compromise because the judger is uncompromising. But we have to keep in mind that even though I have been an INFP my whole life and, and my preference of being a perceiver has, hasn't changed your preferences can be changed and it's on Peter to grow his ability to see all possibilities so that he can prioritize and put things on a scale more. I don't think Peter can ever grow until he truly makes amends with his shame Yeah, over Uncle Ben. Right. And, you know, that's core to the character and therefore no writer is ever going to cure that. And the moment you do cure that, that's what Cassad is talking about. The moment you cure Peter Parker's shame over Uncle Ben is the moment the book is done. But we ended Parallel Lives with Mary Jane coming in with the perspective of Peter. There's only so much you can do. And he has been willing to listen to that at different points in his life. Even in that last book we read. Sensational Spider-Man. Yeah, Sensational Spider-Man. Him going like, Mary Jane is the only reason I go home. Mm -hmm. Like, if it wasn't for her love and her bed to return to, I would be reliving that shame of Uncle Ben again and again and again. And it's that, it's kind of like that rubber band effect of him getting as far away from Mary Jane as he can to then be snapped back. But to, to keep her. a comic going for 60 plus years, a writer can take Peter to that moment, but then the next writer has to snap Bring back. Him back. Yeah. Bring yeah. him back. So yeah. Mary Jane has to be in danger. Aunt May has to be in danger. He's reliving that kind of open wound. And I and I think if you're sustaining a character over decades and decades and decades where people are going to read 16 pages of mostly pictures at a time, like I think that saying that that growth is impossible is underselling what comic books can do and writers having to bring back that same pain again and again and again is limiting to this character. 
Don't you think? I I do agree. That is one of the problems of comic books as a publishing industry. Right. Uh, And it's why I tend to stick to writers on characters rather than stick to characters. That being said, I always come back to my favorite characters to see how different writers interpret them, right? So I have my favorite Spider-Man stories. Yeah. Brian Michael Bendis, Mark Bagley on Ultimate Spider-Man is probably my favorite Spider-Man narrative. Same. Uh, And you consume that, you get to an end point, and you go, okay, that feels satisfying. And then you go off and read other comics. I fall away from the character. But then at some point, I do come back. And what I enjoy about this podcast, what we're doing, is in focusing on Peter and Mary Jane and returning to the end of J. Michael Straczynski's run on Spider-Man and realizing that, JMS did bring an end to the Peter Parker storyline. And it's an upsetting end, but it is an end. And it does not betray the character. And therefore, it's like, okay, that's solid. Then Brand New Day starts, and Dan Slott takes over, and, you know, we start the narrative. The machine keeps running. And I love that the machine keeps running. I love that kids can go to the the comic book store every month and read a Spider-Man comic. I love that I can go to the comic book store every month and read a Spider-Man comic when I want to. I think in terms of relationship advice, if I was to give relationship advice to to keep off the Mephistos to come and, and feast on their love, I would say that in a relationship, it's important, it always goes back to communication, but be able to articulate when you feel deprioritized. So that from Mary Jane's point of view, from Mary Jane's point of view, and because, and from Peter Parker's point of view, I think that he needs to take emotional inventory well, my, every once in a while and go like, who am I putting? My first? takeaway is from the male perspective, right? And it's it's Peter Parker is like these decisions are you you're making are they selfish decisions? Yeah, are you truly making choices out of love or, or out of your own pain. or out of yeah. fear? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that is something that you should always uh, confront in yourself. Mm-hmm. I think that's some solid relationship advice. Well, I hope so. Uh, but we are not done with Peter Parker and Mary Jane. That's right. We, we have, have another week. We have one more section of Dr. Avila's Love Type book. It is putting the love type system to work for you. I, I don't know if there'll be any kidnapping of dogs in this section. I'm very excited. And then what is going to be our Spider-Man and MJ story? So we're going to close out uh, our series on Peter and MJ by looking at a arc that was published just two years after One More Day entitled Red-Headed Stranger, written by Fred Van Lenty and Brian Reed and illustrated by Barry Kitson, Luke Ross, Yannick Pequette. Javier Peludo, and Robert Atkins. That's a lot of artists. A lot of artists. Originally published in Amazing Spider-Man issues 602 through 605, this was the first story that significantly tackled the awkward relationship between Peter and MJ after they had their memories and marriage wiped by Mephisto. Should be pretty interesting. Ew. I've never read it, but I'm excited. And on top of that, you should be on the lookout in the next couple of days, probably on Wednesday, we'll have our bonus episode that we recorded that details the adventures 
of this year's San Diego Comic-Con. And we're going to do a full review of the whole event over at the In the Mouth of Darkness podcast alongside our pals Darren Smith and Brian Young. You should check that out. But we're also releasing this special CBCC interview with actor-turned-director Jason Mewes. Yes, of Jay and Silent Bob fame. Yes, we sat down with Jason up in his hotel suite and had a fairly significant conversation with him. Yeah. Uh, I had blown out my voice, so it's really Lisa's interview. Uh, but man, I, I had a lot of fun being witness to it, and we want to bring you guys along with us. It's that time again, Brad. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. You can email us, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. Lisa, what about you? Where can our listeners send words of affirmation your way? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. And you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Podbean, and Spotify. And we are always accepting the gift of five stars and a sweet little iTunes review. It really helps the show out. And until next time, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy. Bum bum ba da bum bum ba da bum.